Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Never before have so many Americans been more frustrated with our economic system or more open to fresh ideas. Today, we're talking straight talk about the next American revolution. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie. And today we are speaking with Gar Alperovitz about his new book, What Then Must We Do? Straight Talk About the Next American Revolution. We're going to talk about ideas on democratizing wealth and building a community, sustaining collaborative economy from the ground up. What are the institutions and aspects for making that happen? How is it that we can get out from behind the desk and roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty to start building what can potentially become a major transformation of our economic system? So we're going to be covering that with Gar today. He's a professor of political economy at the University of Maryland and co-founder of the Democracy Collaborative. And then after we speak with Gar, we're going to hear just a few minutes of a talk from Stefano Zamani along with his wife, Vera Zamani, professor of economics at the University of Bologna, who is the world's leading scholar of cooperative economics to talk about how aspects of the civil economy can meet our social needs and be a practical and resilient response to the contemporary crises of global capitalism. So we'll jump into our conversation with Gar Alperovitz about the next American Revolution, where we started discussing all of the different components that already exist that are outside of media attention. There's a lot going on that the American press and the international press really doesn't cover and I don't actually think has either the interest or the resources to cover at the grassroots level that suggests the kind of direction that might become a foundation of a new direction for a next America, American system. So yes, although I'm, I'm not a determinist, I'm a historian and a political economist and it's possible that uh, decay will continue or even worse, it's possible that violence will occur and repression. But there is also a powerful trajectory History is full of change. Revolution is common as grass in world history. So I'm uh, very cautiously optimistic, but we can talk about some of the forces at work and some of the things that the press doesn't cover that give me cautious hope. You look back in time a little bit and you look at things in the U.S. history like the Red Scare and anybody trying to advocate anything other than capitalism and democracy in the United States has been kind of pushed under the rug a little bit. How does that go into playing into the whole idea of advocating economic reform and advocating new programs of economics in the United States? Well, I think there are two or three different ways to look at it. One of them is this, that the anger at the big New York banks and the big five banks is perhaps stronger amongst right-wing Tea Party people than it is amongst uh, even the left. 
So there's a funny thing going on in the culture. Very big corporations do not have a constituency of support. All the polls indicate that they are not widely supported. And the banking industry in particular has got a very bad reputation. One of our most conservative writers, George Will, just attacked the big banks and said they ought to be broken up into smaller banks. So that's one piece to look at. The other is, if we put it in rhetorical terms rather than practical terms, there is a very different discussion going on in the United States. So, for instance, there are 130 million Americans, that's 40% of the society, and I'm going to add to that in a minute to get it to 40%, are involved in co-ops and credit unions. Credit unions are one-person, one-vote co-ops. They are one-person, one-vote banks. So that's a huge percentage of the population that is involved in a democratizing the ownership of wealth and capital in everyday terms, but not rhetorically. There are also some 10,000 worker-owned companies of one kind or another operating in the United States. And again, at the grassroots level, the rhetoric gets in the way of what's going on because even many so-called conservatives, so-called, and I use that word carefully, find themselves very supportive of workers owning their businesses, that it does not against that principle. And we could go on talking about various other things like that that are happening at the grassroots level. For instance, there are four or 5,000 neighborhood-owned corporations that democratize ownership in a different way. The state of Alaska famously uses socialized oil revenues and gives every person a guaranteed share of those revenues in, in one of the most conservative states in the country. There's things going on in Texas and Arkansas, leaving aside the more liberal states. So the press simply hasn't reported on this. In my upcoming book, What Then Must We Do?, I kind of go through a lot of this at the grassroots level, suggesting that people who dig a little bit, they'll find opportunities that they're not aware of that are very practical and yet embody very different principles. So that's not the end of things. I mean, we just nationalized General Motors and AIG, the largest insurance company in the world, we gave them back, but the principle was established that taking them over is not impossible in crisis. So if you look at things as I do as a historian and thinking about this over coming decades rather than coming elections, there are processes at work which are not totally negative. They are opening the way of great pain and difficulty that point in the direction of the slow buildup of things that could reach political level if taken seriously. Now, what does this crisis mean for traditional political ideologies on the left and the right, liberalism, conservatism, or even Marxism or libertarianism? Do they even have any relevance in this crisis? One of the things that's happening in the United States, and I think it's more here than any other country, is that traditional liberalism, or what's called social democracy in in Europe, really assumes private ownership corporate ownership of the large-scale capital, and then it assumes that you can put together a sort of balancing politics which regulates taxes, incentivize, provides social programs. Some people call it managed capitalism, some call it social democracy, some call it liberalism, and that that formula, let them own the productive wealth and you can balance it. That's what's been going on in the United States in any significant way since the 1930s until a decade and a half ago. That system depends fundamentally in virtually every country that's been studied to death on a strong labor movement because that's the backing, the muscle behind the politics of balancing or social democracy or liberalism. 
And that system is dying before your eyes in the United States. The most important single factor is that labor has gone from 34% of the labor force in unions to less than 11% and then 6% to 7% in the private sector and is declining. It's a very weak labor movement in any case by European standards. And it is decaying. And it's taking the balancing power, John Kenneth Galbraith used to say countervailing power, is taking it away. So you're getting a decay of the, what I call the dying system of social democratic balancing. And that is creating great pain. And it's not going to be alleviated because the power is declining as well. All the big trends, no matter what Obama says, and we can come to the exceptions, the big trends, income distribution, climate change, civil liberties, those trends are decaying poverty, um, minimum wage, all of those trends in real terms, inflation adjusted, have gotten worse and worse for 30 years, by and large, with a couple of minor exceptions. So we get activity at one level, but we don't get trend change. In fact, we've got deepening pain and deepening economic problems, plus stagnation that the political system can't manage. That's a really very unusual context. It's the kind of context where people can't get answers out of the political system, and yet the system doesn't collapse. And so what they're forced to do, and really the word forced is, is right, either invent a new direction from the bottom up, and it's very hard to do, or the pain gets worse. And what we're seeing, and we, we study this pretty carefully and re- review it, what we're seeing is people experimenting really as never before, except maybe at the end of the 19th century, with co-ops and worker-owned companies and neighborhood land ownership and city ownership and various forms of democratic control of of economic assets from the bottom up and learning new principles and the kind of principles which, if this goes on, inevitably is, you know, that American term in the laboratories of democracy, the states and localities. As conditions get worse, they're likely, to, in my view, to generate using the same principles to larger scale. That's one thing. And as at the other level, big, big banking crisis, healthcare crisis, 20% of the economy or 18% moving to 20%. Big companies, General Motors and Chrysler being the examples, AIG, the large insurance company. There is a whole other process at work which is creating crises at a different level and no easy solution. So this combination of pain, stalemate, decay, developing experimentation at the local level of necessity of pain crises at different levels, I think opens the possibility, I'm not a determinist, of a long, long evolutionary developmental process. And if we got serious about our politics, if we understood and then built strategies around the emerging possibility, most of this is ad hoc. It's happening here and there. One state is trying to do a public bank. Another one's trying to do public health care. There's no organized idea system organizing a strategic politics as yet. But when that happens, I think the possibility of of a great political movement is also implicit in the conditions we're seeing. So viewing it, you know, standing back as I do as a historian and political economist, I think this is potentially the prehistory of the next great American revolution, the necessary period of development prior to the kind of change that would actually be systemic in nature. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think we can all kind of see that we're on the brink of this next big movement. We see the left and the right locked in this stalemate all the time. And a lot of it, a lot of it is due to the fact that industry has just been moving 
in so many different directions than it ever has. The loss of labor, for one, has been a huge catalyzing force in our society as jobs have moved to other countries and people have felt the sting of what it means to be jobless. What is this going to look like as we move forward, as the old guard kind of moves and changes and the Democrats and Republicans no longer are relevant in our changing society? What happens when they go away? Well, I think it's a complicated movement. I think it begins at community levels, and it begins with decentralization and localism, and it has a very powerful ecological kind of concern and sustainability concern. That's at one level. We're beginning to see at another level, and for instance, we've done a lot of work in Cleveland, which is in a very poor black community. And still another level, the American labor movement, parts of it for many, many decades been against worker ownership. But now there's a worker ownership movement and the union's beginning to see they could use their power to create new institutions. And I think there are parts and parcels of the, what is the decentralized conservatives, so-called. In some of the cities we've worked in, we're setting up very complex worker-owned companies, and a number of them linked together, and small business people, if you don't approach them with ideological rhetoric, waving of the flag, but talk about practical answers to practical problems, are very supportive of worker ownership and community ownership and nonprofit development. In principle, it means people work hard and earn, which is an old conservative as well as liberal radical principle. It builds the community. It helps the local economic market and small business people. And indeed, even Ronald Reagan was on record as supporting worker ownership. He thought that was the next great wave in one of his statements. So there are principles, if you drop the rhetoric and look for answers, we may find different ways of putting together the bottom-up coalition community by community by community that actually makes sense. And you get away from the national press and the national ideologues who you know, have an instinct and a stake for rhetoric, and get down to what counts locally, and you begin to see some very interesting possibilities emerging if people start getting serious. Now, you mentioned getting serious about our political possibilities, and could you sketch out some of the possibilities that you see in forming a political movement around these ideas of worker ownership and decentralization, and how that could actually take root at these regional or even bioregional levels? Worker ownership is one model, and we could go back to it and talk about worker ownership is not the be-all and end-all answer. I've been involved in worker ownership movements for 40 years, so I'm an old hand at this, and I'm on record as being very supportive. But it has some problems in larger industry, so let me just sketch that a little bit so we can talk about it. If you gave worker ownership to the big steel companies, to workers in the modern era, they would have to pollute the environment just like any other company because competition would force them to. And their interests in the current market system would drive them to doing the kind of things that are very different from what the community as a whole might want. So there is a difference between the interests of specific workers and the larger collectivity we call the local, national, or regional community. That doesn't mean that smaller scale worker ownership is not appropriate. I think it's very appropriate. But there are also linked models. For instance, Mondragon, the famous Mondragon cooperatives, integrate worker co-ops within a larger framework that is much more integrated and has bigger interests than any one worker company. In Cleveland, we've been working with a very interesting design because here you have worker co-ops, very sophisticated and some of them very large scale now, but they are not freestanding. They are part of a community building integrated system. 
So for instance, there's a nonprofit corporation that links different worker-owned companies together, and there's a revolving fund that links these worker-owned companies, and the companies pay into the revolving fund so new companies can be started, and they also pay in so something can be done to build up the local community. So there's an attempt to build from the ground up an integration, not simply of this worker company and that worker company driving worker capitalism, if you like, but trying to build a communal vision and a community sustaining larger vision. This is for larger industry. And I think that's going to be a critical element in the future because it, it solves a lot of problems that are not often faced. Here's another one. Worker ownership of the oil industry would produce worker owners who want to generate oil and carbon output in a market economy. A worker ownership of the oil industry on the one hand and worker ownership of the garbage industry on another will produce inequality. So we've got to begin thinking about how we integrate systems of integrated institutions that don't produce these groups against the larger community as a whole. And that little design I mentioned for Cleveland is kind of sketch, which might make sense, again, for larger industries. Smaller worker-owned co-ops is another thing because they are subordinated to community culture. But I think we're going to have to get much more sophisticated about how we think about design. And indeed, we're already seeing it on the ground in some of these experiments that people realize that we've got to go beyond traditional, simple, what are kind of simple ideas of just worker ownership will solve all problems. So essentially what you're talking about is establishing enterprises and structures that keep more of the wealth local and in the control of a community rather than being filtered through a global cap and force. Yeah, and on the one hand, communities at the level of scale where you can deal with communities. Now, anybody who's ever kind of ridden on a train or flown in an airplane realizes that some industries are larger than any one community, which means you're either going to go to large regional ownership or national ownership for bigger industry because they're too big for any one community. But the principles is not simply ownership, it is how do we generate and create and really think seriously about creating a culture of common community. Because that's the heart of any larger ecological vision, any real democracy. And unless you do it locally and begin to try to generate the principles of participation and commonality and ordinary community, rather than divide up the pie between businesses on the one hand and and in significant scale ones, and even worker groups versus worker groups. One has to think this through much more carefully at the local level. If the goal is a larger democratic society, then the principle of democracy on the one hand and community on the other hand supersede worker ownership. That doesn't mean that worker management and worker self-direction of firms isn't important. We begin, I think, thinking much more clearly about larger scale institutions that broaden the idea beyond just worker ownership. So I just want to clarify a little bit. Uh, Between a worker co-op and a corporation, I know a corporation is owned by shareholders and a co-op is owned by workers. But what does that really entail? Well, and again, I was just speaking about larger scale. and smaller scale worker co-ops, they can be freestanding because they are subordinated to a larger culture. And I think that's important wherever possible. A worker co-op traditionally has been one person, one vote, control of the enterprise. It may or may not be driven by profit considerations. And it's very tricky because in a capitalist market, you have to, you know, you've got to succeed or you die. So there are pressures to produce profits, to cut costs, to begin acting like a private corporation has to act. Private corporation is owned by 
individuals or shareholders, and the entire goal is to make profits. And indeed, if it's up against competition, whether the people who own it or like to or not, if it's facing competition, it will begin to pollute because somebody else is going to cut costs by polluting and you're out of business if you don't pollute. So you're forced to, even if your intentions are better than that. And that's true of worker-owned companies too, by the way. So you need a larger framework if you want to solve problems of pollution or global warming because the market drives these people in both structures to reduce costs and to externalize costs. So we've got to get into a vision that you know, begins to integrate community-wide concerns into the ownership pattern. But those are the distinctions. Markets create very powerful forces, even against worker-owned companies. So I guess that brings up a larger question then. If companies are all about cutting costs and making more efficiencies without thinking about the global costs and the human costs, how do we move past that into a culture where human costs are calculated into the actual equation when doing business and where opening up a culture in a third world nation does not really entail destroying it? How do we account for that in the equation of doing business? That is the central question, in my opinion. You've asked the most important question that gets us beyond a lot of traditional capitalist and socialist thought, frankly. The socialist thought has not been powerful on this as well, in most cases. So one of the ways to think about that, I mean, there are two or three different ways to come at it, in my opinion. I've been thinking a lot about this, and indeed we're starting a project we call the Next System Project, to ask these kind of tough questions, tough questions of the old ideas. One way to think about it is, how do you, and this is what we just talked about, how do you subordinate one worker company and other worker companies to a larger structure that inherently is community in its design? So, for instance, in a community-wide ownership structure, as the one I just talked about a little earlier in Cleveland, if a company decides to pollute, it is polluting the community that owns it. So the community decides about its interests, whether it wants to or not. In a freestanding company, private or worker-owned, if the market forces it to pollute, its interest is against the interest of the larger community. So structures can be set up that subordinate worker or other companies to a larger community, inherently inclusive idea. And then you, the economists would say, we internalize the externalities, the community as a whole, is designed so it can decide if it wants to pollute itself, if it owns. So that's one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is culturally, building up a culture of ecological sustainability that begins to generate different values. And that's happening in many parts of the country. Lots of people are thinking seriously about sustainability and green values and green culture. So you begin to try to constrain these pressures culturally. And a third way is democratically, beginning to build a much more powerful democracy from the ground up. But structure is really important, and I think the uh, progressives haven't thought enough about structure. They've kind of been enamored by simply the idea of worker ownership. And worker ownership on its own doesn't solve a lot of problems, even though I'm a longtime proponent of worker ownership wherever necessary and wherever possible. It occurs to me that every time big thinkers come up with new ideas to move our culture forward or move our economy in a different direction or to even trigger an economic transition of some sort, we come up against old entrenched powers that refuse to budge and will not give us an inch into letting our new society or the new society that we're thinking about take hold. How do we educate people in charge into helping them to understand that if they keep doing the things they're doing 
society is just going to fall apart. Uh, it won't exist anymore in, in any kind of beneficial way to us or even to them. Is there a way to make people see or is it just something that will have to happen in time? Well, it's a genuine question. You know, let's be clear about it. I'm a very cool-eyed kind of historian and political economist. It is possible that nothing can ever change, period. That's a possibility. On the other hand, take a look at the former Soviet Union. It was thought to be so centralized in power that nothing could ever change, and one day it collapsed. Look at apartheid in South Africa, even more entrenched, and one day it collapsed. Throughout Latin America, there were dictators everywhere torturing people and imprisoning, and now most of those are gone, and they looked impossible to challenge. So history is a very strange thing. It's very powerful until things change, and then people say, well, it was inevitable anyway because conditions were worsening and people built up pressure, and inevitably that had to give way. So I'm not an inevitabilist, but on the other hand, I don't also think it's inevitable that the current power structure will stay forever. Indeed, I think the situation that we're entering is the most interesting period of American history, and I think maybe in all of our history, because they've run out of capacity to solve problems. And I think that's a critical moment in the history of a system, when you can't get answers to important problems out of the political system or the economic system. That means poverty increases, unemployment increases, personal pain increases, lower wages, ecological destruction, climate change, civil liberties are declining. We can go through all the trends. And the political system can't solve the problem. That's a time when people ask big questions and people become much angrier and they begin to experiment. And if that goes on for a long time, which I think it's likely to, I don't think that it's going to be easy to solve these problems, then it's a very important both to experiment, as millions of people are, and as I say, and in, in we've been studying it, and I cover it in this new book, we report on what we see in all these experiments at the work around companies and co-ops and integrated structures and many, many, many other things going on. That coming together with social unrest and at some point clarity about direction, that is people beginning to think through and saying, this is the right direction in a way that is sensible, practical, makes sense, it's not rhetorical. I'm from a small Midwestern city in Wisconsin, about 100,000 people, industrial city. My test on all these things is, can I talk to my neighbors about it? Have I thought it through enough so that I can explain it in practical terms of why it's an improvement? And if it's at that level and was citing real examples rather than simply waving flags and only rhetoric, let me put it this way. I think our ideas had better make sense or we shouldn't do them. And if they make sense, they ought to be explainable. <laughs> so that's my grounding place. And I think there's enough examples building up that give us handholds, not on abstract theory, but on real things that are going on that can be pointed to and, can, and are suggestive. And the people, once they take a look at them, find there's, there's a lot of pluses in them. And I think that's the way to think about building a, a, both a movement and experiments and a political vision from the ground up rather than to resort to some of the abstractions that I think too, all too easily get caught up in political movements. Now, as you mentioned, there is this growing sense of unease amongst the populations of many modern nation states as they find themselves under a government that is not able to effectively deal with the modern challenges, economic or energy or climate. How can people take their unease and channel that into something? 
Well, I think you put your finger on exactly what I think is happening because the signs of loss of belief of anger at the central government, the big corporations are just growing in all the polls. Two-thirds of the people don't believe in the United States. I think the Congress has an approval rate of 7%. 93% don't believe it's doing anything serious at all. And the corporations have the same approval rating. They're just not quite as bad as the Congress. So in that context, I think, you know, you start at the bottom and you start building up both political understanding and also practical experiments and practical demonstrations of what can be done. We've been working on these worker-owned companies and integrated companies with community building. And we're finding many, many cities where you can't solve problems, find this a really positive direction to go in. And indeed, in some cases, the big hospitals, which are nonprofit corporations and universities, and they get public subsidies, they purchase a lot of things and they can buy from these kinds of companies. And indeed, that's what's happening. They're they're beginning to support community building and beginning to teach people different principles in practice. That's one level. And the green part of that is another part of it. And the community culture and participatory culture, turning that into economic terms that are hard edged and real as in the many, many experiments that are out there now, and the the one in Cleveland is the most interesting one, but I'll give you a website that just reports on this. It's called community-wealth.org or .com. Be sure to put the dash in, community-wealth. And it reports on this stuff, and there is tons of it going on just beneath the radar. It isn't yet a political movement, but it's beginning to move in that direction too. There's a wonderful film called Shift Change, Shift, S-H-I-F-T, which talks about the Mondragon Corporation, but also many co-ops emerging in this country. And there are a number of films and videos that are beginning to develop around all this stuff that hasn't been reported on in the press. That is the preliminaries of a real movement, I think. And it could be nurtured and developed and treated with new ideas that begin to point towards larger structure. And I think that's a possible direction. I've tried to sketch that in both my last book, America Beyond Capitalism, and in this upcoming one, which is called uh, What Then Must Be Done. You know, at other levels, there are questions of the health system, which is in very great difficulty in the United States and state by state. 20 states are proposing single payer. In the United States, there is a public bank owned by the state of North Dakota, and another roughly 20 states are considering legislation to set up public banks. And all of this is happening. Why? Because other things are failing. You might put it this way that the elements of a mosaic that needs to be put together are beginning to come up around the country. And the mosaic begins to suggest the vision of a different system that is highly decentralized, democratized from the bottom up, change in ownership at the appropriate scale, local where necessary, neighborhood where necessary, larger scale where appropriate, including some private firms. And we're beginning to put together a vision that is very American. In our case, it looks like there's a lot of it going on in Canada as well has been for much longer, the social economy movement. But now when the overall system is in crisis and deepening crisis, these kinds of ideas and practices and practical knowledge, I can't emphasize that enough, practical knowledge. I think people who are interested in rhetoric should roll up their sleeves and find out how to actually do some of this and begin to show on the ground what we're really talking about. That's developing around the country, and I think it's the prehistory of the great movement that just possibly will come out of these conditions.
The first time the workers at what was then the Republic Windows and Doors factory in Chicago were laid off by their factory owner, they occupied their factory. The second time they were laid off by their owner, they decided to take over and become their own boss. This May, those workers are now the happy worker owners of New Era Windows, which is opening for business as we speak. We decided to make a co-op because we were tired of our life being in someone else's hand. Uh, at Republic, they had walked away from our job. Then seriously about the company, they had walked away from our job and we hadn't walked away. So we had found out about the cooperative and we started pursuing it. And lo and behold, here we are today. Workers at Delta T discuss the latest sales figures. They have a vested interest in them. They all own the British company. The scientific instrument maker is one of a growing number of cooperatives in Europe. Austerity is fueling their popularity and helping them grow despite a weak economy. Delta T's soil moisture reading devices have helped double its turnover in the last five years. Chris Nicholl is chairman of its management committee. And that we have been continually reinvesting the profits we've made rather than those being paid out to shareholders or to uh, a CEO. In 2010 there were 160,000 cooperatives in Europe employing 5.4 million people and Britain has seen a 20% increase in the past five years. Many well-known products are made by cooperatives. Nearly all French champagne is produced by them, as is Danish bacon, exported to over 100 countries. And 90% of Italy's Parmesan cheese. A quarter of Germany's banking sector is also cooperatively run, as is Barcelona Football Club. We are a country, an economy, for example, with very high levels of staff disengagement. People are really not motivated to work there. We know that engaging staff uh, through giving them an ownership stake, a say uh, in the enterprise, is a fabulous way of motivating staff. I feel that in the past when I worked in restaurants, I worked very hard, but the bottom line was so money, 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 money. And I was, of course, exploited. The owners were all living better than I was. This is the heart of the Basque Country, a beautiful yet fiercely independent region more commonly associated with the violent activity from the region's separatist group ETA. But the town of Mondragon has become known for something else. It's home to the world's largest cooperative. Founded more than 50 years ago, it has more than 80,000 owner-workers employed across 256 companies. Decisions affecting each co-op are voted on by owner-workers. One worker, one vote in secret. One of the things that makes Mondragon stand out from other businesses is the issue of pay. The boss of any given cooperative can earn only nine times as much as the lowest paid earner, provided the cooperative has approved of that. Well, compare that to, say, the bosses of the UK's top 100 companies, who can earn up to 200 times the amount of the lowest paid earner. Arish Ochandiano is the president of a local co-op that makes machine parts. He's been working here for 10 years, and while he could earn more elsewhere, he prefers the stability of working here. Our objective isn't to make the most money like other corporations. Instead, we want to raise the level of the whole community, our living standards for the whole region. For me, these values are important, and that's why my salary isn't the only factor. 
Mondragon is present in many areas, technology and research, supermarkets, as well as domestic and industrial components. It even has its own savings bank and university. But entering into the co-op is not straightforward. To become an owner-worker, employees make an initial investment of $20,000, which they normally have to borrow from the co-op savings bank. It secures the running of the system, but it's no guarantee against failure, an idea that has not convinced some foreign partners. And while owner-employees say that the system may not be perfect, most agree it may be the best option they have in these uncertain times. Initiative that's happening in the US called Evergreen Co-ops, which was inspired by the Basque Mondragon Co-ops, um, and it's what in the UK we call a top-down model, which means someone has a big idea, gets some money, and uses the cooperative model to create jobs and common ownership businesses in deprived communities, and that's happening in Cleveland, Ohio. So the old school way of doing economic development, which hasn't really worked if you look at the inequality indices in the UK is to try and recruit big businesses to bring their jobs to your town. Um, and what actually happens is businesses come and businesses go. And what that means for people on the ground is that jobs come and jobs go. We need to create a situation where people can, can make their own jobs uh, rather than go and find jobs. There isn't, there isn't a market out there. Youth unemployment is at a record high. And the cooperative model has, has a history of people saying, actually, if someone's not provide this for us, we'll go and make it for ourselves. A group of young people set up a co-op to answer a need. They're much more likely to be successful uh, than if they go into a private business, uh, which uh, has a much higher failure rate currently than cooperatives do, because they will have the combined energy of everybody who's working together to solve the problem and the energy of the co-op movement behind them, rather than trying to do things on their own. I'm calling out your name Today on The Extra Environmentalist, we're talking with Gar Alperwitz about the next American Revolution. As you know, there, there are lots of experiments with local currencies. There are also lots of experiments beginning to be called for with public banks or municipal banks or municipally supported banks. So, for instance, I mentioned earlier the state of North Dakota has had one for 90 years, which is owned by the state. It's very popular amongst left, right, and center. And the state puts its deposits in that bank and creates loans, which they then allow smaller banks around the state to loan out. Some states and some cities, Los Angeles and Kansas City, are saying the money we have as a state and a city ought to be put either in a public bank or a public credit union, or we'll put it only in banks that begin to build the community. And since all the banks want that big pile of taxpayer money, they begin to get leverage on the banking system at the state and local level. I mean, ultimately, these big banks, that they are essentially or ought to be public banks. People don't know this, but it's a really interesting tale. The old American conservatives, the, the Chicago School of Economics, which was established in the 1930s, and Milton Friedman, the great conservative economist, was studied there, and his teachers, the founders, 
great conservative free market economists. They understood and wrote explicitly some of these big corporations and big banks are simply too big to regulate. If you try to regulate them, they will take over the regulators and cause more crises. On the other hand, if you try to break them up, they will get back together like Standard Oil did in this country. So you can't even break them up for a long period. You might do it for a short period, but they will find a way to eat up the the big fish, will eat the little fish, and they'll be back there concentrated again. So from the conservative point of view, they were better than the liberals on this. The conservative point of view, if you wanted a free market economy, which is what they wanted, you'll have to nationalize these guys because that's the only way to get them to avoid destroying, using their power to destroy a free market. And I think that actually is likely to happen. I think we may in the United States break up some of these big banks when the next crisis happens, and then they will get back together. And it may take two or three crises before people finally wake up to the notion that you can't regulate them and you can't break them up, so that the only option left is to make them into public entities. Again, if you're interested in what we're talking about in this conversation, you've got to talk about 20 or 30 years of process and the buildup of a great movement and the great ideas and concrete suggestions and culture don't play this game unless you want to play for decades. This is the nature of transforming the largest powerful system in the history of the world is about putting decades on the table, not putting weeks and months for the next election and, and really understanding what you're doing, laying the groundwork. This generation may lay the groundwork for a great transformation. It's unlikely to solve all the problems. The subtitle of your new book is Straight Talk About the Next American Revolution. And in 2011, with the Occupy movement, we saw a bit of an uprising, a bit of a citizen revolt. But what does the next wave, the next revolt look like, the part of the revolution that has yet to come? Um, You know, is it people getting elected uh, as part of this broader movement? What is some straight talk? Well, and again, we're in the, and I can't emphasize it enough, we're in what I think of as the prehistory, the laying of the groundwork, the developmental work, the beginning phases. And to understand that is important because people, otherwise they, they, when they don't get a great success tomorrow, they go home. No, that's not the nature of it. And let me say a little more about that. My heroes are the members of the civil rights movement in the South in the United States who started in the 1930s and 40s. That's 20, 30 years before the 60s when the great explosions occurred. And these were people who knew that, and and they risked their lives, and many of them lost their lives, that a great revolution doesn't happen without many decades of work. So, you know, I often say if you want to play the game, the the chips you got to throw on the table are decades of your life. But having said that, I think there is a huge amount going on. People are right now being arrested in the United States over this Trans-Canada pipeline. That's a whole new direct action is coming out of the environmental movement. And that's a new phase. Even the Sierra Club is being arrested. So consciousness is, is changing. So there's a political side to this which has to do with protest and de- demanding politics. And then there is this question that we've spent most of our time on so far. What is the content institutionally? What does the next system look like? If you don't like corporate capitalism, you don't like state socialism, what do you want? And what we're beginning to suggest is the idea of a decentralized vision of democratizing from the bottom up and building up to larger scale only when necessary, emphasizing community, emphasizing ecological culture and ecological concerns. It is a different vision. It's a community-sustaining vision with many different forms of ownership, co-ops, neighborhood corporations, municipal corporations, public regional corporations, a nonprofit, even nationalized firms when necessary. It's a plural forms of ownership. 
only when appropriate. Neighborhoods are geographic. Co-ops are worker-owned by function. So it's a plural form of ownership, a pluralist commonwealth, I sometimes call it, that aims at building community and building from the bottom up in a community-sustaining economy. So I think those are some of the principles. There's a level of institutional building, which is necessary, experimenting, the kind we're talking about. There's a cultural element that's developing rapidly in terms of human culture and ecological culture. The idea system is also important, and we're just beginning to debate different ways of thinking about organizing systems. And I think it's going to have to get much more sophisticated than some of the ideas that are on the table now. So we begin to think through what makes sense rather than knee-jerk for one or another of the old ideas. We need to actually ask ourselves tough questions about if you don't like the design of capitalism, you don't like the design of socialism, state socialism, corporate capitalism, what really makes sense? And I begin to suggest some of the elements that at least we've been working at here and, and I've been trying to sort out in things I've written and other people have written about some of the elements of the, what the next system looks like if you want it to be democratic, ecologically sustaining, and, and community sustaining. One of the largest challenges that we face as a species is that we've been rooted in a paradigm of macroeconomic growth for so long that has created the challenges of climate change and energy depletion. And so what aspects do you see of this new economy revolution that's going on that can get past the need for macroeconomic growth and really start to address our ecological challenges on this planet? Well, the most difficult problem in all this, and it faces all kinds of companies in any market, is that market systems of any kind, even market socialist systems, almost inevitably generate growth. And the reason for that is that, and we'll just take the example of worker-owned companies or public corporations, if they are competing with other companies, even if they want to not grow, the other companies will begin to generate new technologies that cut costs. And therefore, they'll be able to increase their sales and your company will be forced either to get new technologies and grow to meet the competition or you're out of business. That applies also to worker-owned companies, incidentally. Now, it doesn't apply for very small ones, but any place there are economies of scale, technologically, economies of research, that's very important in Mondragon research is very important, but big companies can do more research. Economies of finance, economies of marketing. The market will force you to grow. So either you challenge that directly by turning the larger ones into public corporations that are not dependent on growth, or you build a culture that begins to attack growth. And if possible, smaller scale units that can regulate, because the national government is clearly controlled by the people who don't want to be regulated. So a whole series of elements and a very sophisticated understanding of what a market economy does is, is necessary. Planning has other problems. So there are parts of the economy that probably need a balance of planning and the use of the market. And the fundamental change here is whether or not we can build attitudes from the ground up, a culture that begins to attack these pressures and can regulate both private and public and even worker-owned companies to a new culture. So the, there are a lot of elements in dealing with this, the question you ask. And it's not a simple one that can be done simply. But I think what's happening is people are beginning, just beginning to understand how profound the revolution has to be in terms of structure and culture and time availability to put human needs first and have the time to do participatory democracy 
all of those elements are what we will ultimately, I think, put together in the design of the next system that I think will move us towards a community-sustaining system with many different forms of ownership that begin to attack the problem head on. Now, it really seems to me that we're in an extremely exciting time period that we're living through right now. And we can only grasp these ideas, these new big ways of thinking, because our knowledge base and our frame of reference has so expanded during this extremely communicative time period in human existence. And it has allowed us to take into account some really radical paradigm shifts and even just new economic ways of thinking. I'm wondering if there are any other exciting examples. You mentioned the Cleveland uh, example. I'm wondering if there are any other examples of these breakthroughs taking place right now. Well, first, let me underline what you just said. I think it is a very exciting time, a context that may open a way to really transform the most powerful political economic systems in the history of the world, maybe. For all the reasons we're talking about, that may be what's before us over the next few decades. It's an extraordinary moment in the history of a society, and it's right to recognize it and understand it's exciting in the sense that you said. Because a lot of people really say, oh, the power is so great, nothing can be done. It certainly is great power, but it's not inevitable that the power will last forever. And to think about transformation is a very, very exciting in, in some sense to really realize human values in a real way. It's a wonderful challenge and extraordinary period of history. So I just wanted to underline that, and I think that's the way to think about it. To answer your question, there are a number of countries that have experimented with different parts of the puzzle. So, for instance, public banking, which I think is going to be very important in all this, who controls finance, roughly 40% of finance around the world is in one or another form of cooperative or public banking. There's a really interesting woman named Ellen Brown who's been writing about this and getting more and more attention in the United States in the public banking movement. And there is a a very strong effort to put public banking right on the middle of the table of politics in many parts of the country, here and abroad. So that's going to be a key element of this. I mentioned the Mondragon model, and there are people here exploring the Mondragon cooperatives, the integrated cooperatives in the Basque country, and they're trying to do some of that here with the support of the steelworkers. There's an element, the U.S. steelworkers are called a union worker co-ops. So, for instance, historically, co-ops and unions have not been on the same path. But there's no reason why, particularly in larger firms, co-ops can't have unions. In the Mondragon Corporation, they call them the social committee, but they're not called unions. But there is always a difference between the people who are actually working day to day and the folks who begin to take on management responsibilities. So some structure, whether you call it a union or not, is being developed and experimented with right now by the United Steelworkers right in the United States today in their effort to set up union co-ops. Another element, I mentioned the Alaska oil being distributed in a very conservative state, you know, in a good year, as a matter of legal right, as a matter of right, not as a matter of begging in some sense. In Sarah Palin's Alaska, in a good year, $2,000 per person, which means a family of four would get about $10,000 as a matter of legal right from socialized ownership of oil. So that's another element. Even in the conservative state of Alabama, the public pension funds are investing in worker-owned companies. You wouldn't expect this, but there it is on the ground, very practical, maverick kind of developments. And again, in the book, in both America Beyond Capitalism, my last book, and in the new one, What Then Is To Be Done?, I've really made an effort with the folks here at our group, the Democracy Collaborative, to really show people the practical stuff 
because it gives you something that you can actually see and do that somebody's doing in one part of the country or another or in Canada even more exciting in, in all of the work on the you know, social economy. One of the largest structural changes that has taken place in the United States economy since 2008 has been the mean duration of unemployment, the amount of time that people remain unemployed while seeking a new job. And it was about 15 to 20 weeks before 2008. And now it's roughly 40 weeks. And so that means there's a large number of people who find themselves amongst this new category of long-term unemployed and even youth who find themselves as really heavily underemployed in jobs that are perhaps service sector when they train for something technical. What advice do you have to everybody who's either underemployed or long? Well, first, just to underline what you're saying, that's another sign of the crisis, that the political system and the economic system can't solve the problem. Let me also say one more word about that. We don't have, in the United States, we don't have an economic problem at all. Now, why do I say that contradictory idea? This economy in the United States today produces over $190,000 for every family of four. Right today, if it were at full employment, it would be over $200,000. Today, with no change. We have a political problem managing the richest economy in the history of the world. It's not an economic problem that's endemic to the economy. So we need to get clear on it. It's a political problem that we can change. The second, the advice is a painful advice. I mean, most people try to find a way to make do with some government support, part-time jobs if they can find them, you know, relatives, friends, all the things people attempt to do just to get by. But the other piece of it is working to build up these alternatives, as on that website again, community-wealth.org, will give you ideas of what people are doing in many parts of the country. And the third answer is, There is no way out of this without all of us building a different movement. So it's a very painful period in the lives of many people. I don't have a utopian answer, but I know what the ingredients are for all of us, and that means those who've got jobs as well, because you may be next, as well as your social responsibility to get out and get to work on this. There's so many people that I knew growing up or even when I was going to my local state university who've moved all around the world now that they've graduated and become older because the local economy had lost so many jobs and was so unstable. How can this local instability be addressed and what are some ecological benefits of doing so? Either people roll up their sleeves and work with the people they know, which means locally. Or these conditions will continue. If you keep chasing the horizon, you will never have enough stability or community to build a political and an economic base. So I'm strong on the idea that, you know, you better face it where you are and then begin to build politically with the people you know, because you're going to find it harder to do it someplace else chasing the clouds. So that's number one. Number two is if you can achieve stability and building from the ground up. I gave the Cleveland example, but there are many other communities that we could talk about you can begin to stabilize the economy enough so you can do serious sustainability planning. If you want to reduce the carbon footprint of a city, you better stabilize it because if if you don't, but you can't do high-density housing, you can't do serious mass transit. If you keep destabilizing, you can't even plan. In the United States, Cleveland, again, to use that example, was 900,000. It's now 400,000. Detroit lost a million people. Well, those people went someplace, which meant, first, you can't do serious planning in Detroit or Cleveland, And secondly, the carbon costs and the capital costs of rebuilding housing, schools, hospitals, et cetera, for all those people who had to go someplace else. They used to have houses and hospitals and schools. Someplace else they have to be built. 
huge costs. We literally throw away cities. If you can stabilize this, you can reduce both the capital costs and the carbon costs of all that, and you can do sustainability planning. So that requires a whole clear vision of you know how we do this, how we step-by-step step move towards a different understanding of first what's necessary, and then the practical elements of how to do it, building on what we see around the country. There's enough on the ground now. If people wake up and look at it, you will see somebody has done what you could do in your city, has done it in another several cities. So really part of the problem is people are not actually willing to look at what can be done. And I urge people strongly, if it can be done in a city like Cleveland, which is a really rough city, and many other cities, check that webpage, community-wealth, put the dash in, .org, and you will find things that are happening in this country and other countries that can be applied in almost any city. So then the systemic crisis becomes an existential challenge. It isn't about what's out there. It's about what's inside us. Are we going to roll up our sleeves and do what we know can be done, both to build projects and companies and co-ops and to build a political movement? It always translates to the person sitting in your chair and my chair. It's all too easy to do it rhetorically. And the bottom line becomes, are we willing to learn enough and do enough and begin to build enough so that we can lay the groundwork for something serious? And the people that are sitting in our chairs, you and I, are creating media that we're pushing out to the world so that people can wake up and they have some practical knowledge to make these ideas become reality. Right now, we see the role of media being that mostly of entertainment, some news, some of the time. But there really is a really powerful need for media to fill, and it has filled in the past. What do you see the role of media in our world being in, in helping to create this new economy and this new world, this new culture, where can media take us, and how should they hold that responsibility and trust? How should they exercise this responsibility? Well, let me underline that. That's exactly right, and, and what you folks are doing with your own media efforts is really important. Just getting the information out, making it clear other people are doing it, and that means you probably could if you wanted to. Deepening the theoretical discussion as we've begun to probe into some of the theoretical problems of if you don't like corporate capitalism, you don't like state socialism, how do you organize a system? Really getting that on the table, introducing people to different ideas, introducing people to the idea that a movement is building up so that they don't feel so alone. That, that is a critical function of media and absolutely necessary. So I take my hats off to guys like you who are doing it. Thanks for your time today. And to close out, we were just wondering if you had any about the magnitude of the challenge of changing a socioeconomic political system as large as the United States and also our global economic. Revolutions are as common as grass in world history. If you look at the long pattern, in the United States and in Canada in a different way, the most powerful empire of the time, the British Empire, was outgunned by a handful of farmers and small businessmen and ultimately defeated. The systems try to generate they must generate the idea that they are inevitable and that they will last forever. Turns out, if for anyone a historian knows that's simply not true, in not only in our own era, but in history, systems come and go. So that's the first place. The second is starting where you are and beginning to do what you can to build the elements of the next system, I think, is the key decision. And not only practically, but I sometimes say the American women's movement in the 1960s was very important in one respect. Chairman Mao, the Chinese leader, used to say, power comes out of the barrel of a gun. And these women said, no, you know, I think 
power comes when half a dozen of us get together and we read and learn and think together and have a little meeting and some coffee and drinks and really struggle with the ideas. And then we figure out what we can do locally and then we act and support each other. And that, I think, is where power comes from. So it's not so much, you know, rhetoric. It's a matter of actually getting half a dozen friends around and saying, what can we do here that can move the ball? And there's a lot of places called here in your country and, and around the world that you add them up, that that's all there is, frankly. And a movement that has power starts with all the here's in the world. Today on The Extra Environmentalist, you are listening to a talk recorded in Vancouver, British Columbia with Professor Stefano Zamani and Vera Zamani about the civil economy. It is a universally taken for granted that today there is no alternative to a market economy. As we know, until a quarter of a century ago, that was not the case. Before the collapse of the Berlin Wall, some people in different parts of the world were thinking that a, a centrally planned economy would have been a better alternative to a market type of economy. Now we know that uh, that type of uh, assumption is uh, no longer tenable because uh, the centrally planned mold uh, disappeared apart from few cases such as North Korea or perhaps Cuba. So it is a fact that there is no real incredible alternative to market economy. But that does not mean that uh, the end of the history, or better to say, the end of the debate. Because we should know that there are different models of market economy. All of them share the fundamental elements of a market economy. Just as a footnote, we know that the market economy was born in the 14th, 15th century. So it has a long history behind it. And it, we have also to consider that the market economy was a, an incredible way invention to civilize. I, initially, the market economy was born in order to civilize as a, an instrument of civilization. And that was the case. But over time, over the centuries, the last five, six centuries, market economy went through different types of models. And that is the object of debate nowadays. So nobody questioned the existence of a market economy, but we should debate and discuss which type of model of the market economy fits our necessities, our hopes, our needs, etc. Now, to be synthetic and uh, uh, to be essential, so to speak, uh, we can distinguish between three models. One is what is called uh, the so-called neoliberal market economy. The second model is called uh, the social market economy, and the third one is called the civil market economy. So I repeat, all three share the fundamental elements of a market economy, such as division of labor, 
such as uh, the notion of development, such as the notion of free enterprise. These are the three basic pillars of any type of market economy. But given that, we can dis differentiate the three models. Now, there are many ways of characterizing the three models. And let me stress that the three models are associated to different cultural matrices. In general, people associate the neoliberal market economy to the US cultural metrics, even though it, we have to admit there are many scholars, many intellectuals, even in these days in the US, that uh, are rather critical vis-à-vis uh, -vis the neoliberal market economy. The social market economy is usually associated to Germany. Because it is true that it was German during the interwar period, but above all after the Second World War, which uh, uh, developed the foundations and the empirical application of the social market economy. And nowadays, for instance, uh, if you read uh, the Treaty of the European Union, or the Constitution, or better to say the treaty, in the Treaty of the European Union, it's written, the European Union adopted the model of social market economy. Finally, the third model, the civil market economy. That is a model which um, enjoyed a high consideration reputation in the, let's say, distant past. Until the end uh, of the 18th century, that was the model of a market economy. But since then, uh, it, in a sense, disappeared. And uh, the reason why I'm talking about uh, that model uh, as well as the other two is because in the last few years, or couple of decades, this uh, third model is uh, re-emerging. And uh, we have to ask ourselves, why is that so? Which kind of reasons? justify a new interest in the civil market economy. As you know, many economists keep on saying, this crisis is uh, as bad, as serious as the 1929 big crisis. It's not true, it's too ridiculous. You can't make this comparison because they are only based on nothing. What science, uh, science proved uh, was the following, that during the 29th crisis, the condition, the economic condition of everybody deteriorated. And the economic condition of the rich of that time deteriorated more than the economic conditions of the poor of that time. In this crisis, the present crisis, the opposite is true. The 15, 20% of the richest in this crisis has, in, has increased their condition. And the poor have even more decreased. So it makes a lot of difference. So we cannot continue to say nonsense, saying this crisis is like the previous one. Because in the, in the previous one, everybody got worse off. In this crisis, not everybody. And you know, there is no, no reason to make names, uh, to give names, but everybody knows that there are a group of people and companies which benefited from this crisis. Because from speculation, some people, let me call them the cunning people, obtain more and more income at the, at the detriment of the others. So now you understand why we live, this is a paradox. Because it's not true, as we used to believe in the past, that increasing income 
would benefit everybody. And so that is the first, uh, what's the connection between this remark and what I, the thesis I'm defending? The connection is the following. We need more cooperatives. Why? Because a cooperative is that strange animal within economics, which is such that the generation of income goes hand to hand with its distribution. Or one could say, why not the government? Again, that is a good question. But the government nowadays, in the epoch of globalization, are necessary but not sufficient to obtain more equality. That is a point that escapes a, a certain number of economists. Because old-fashioned economists, they would say, well, let's give more power to the government. And no, because that was true yesterday, at the time when the economists were national economy. But today, we live in a globalized world. And the power of a national government cannot be extended outside the boundaries of the country. The Canadian government, federal government cannot impose rules uh, which has to be applicable to firms operating in other countries, etc. So that is why we need more cooperative, which uh, types of enterprises operating inside the market and which uh, obtain the result I described before. The second reason has to do with another, with another paradox of our society. That is the paradox of, um, let's say, lack of democracy. Let me explain. We know the democratic principle, more or less, what is that about? The principle was uh, clearly defined already many centuries ago by Aristotle. Democracy is a Greek word, is a Greek word. And Aristotle was the first theoretician uh, on that ground. And, uh, even nowadays, most of the times, we tend to believe that democracy is uh, something having to do with the political sphere, not with the economic sphere. That is uh, the most incredible mistake. Of course, the fault is how? Is the fault of the intellectual, who kept on teaching this kind of separation theorem. The separation theorem says democracy has to be applied in the political sphere. Economics, or better to say the market sphere, has nothing to do with democracy. Because democracy is costly. And within the, the, the market sphere, we have to be efficient. Democracy is time consuming. Because under democracy, we have to debate. In the market sphere, we have to take decisions in five minutes. Those who operate in the financial markets, they have to take decisions in one or two minutes before something otherwise will happen. So the argument was, OK, we love democracy in the political sphere. So multi-party system, free election every four or five years, whatever, etc., etc. The market sphere has its own rules of the game, which do not contemplate democracy. And in fact, have you ever heard an economist when dealing with market theory talking about democracy? I never heard, never. I have read a certain number of books, never. Go and check. 
Because the argument is that market has its own rules, which uh, have nothing to do with the democratic rule. Now, this separation theorem did not produce major disasters until recently when the national governments, in a sense, they had the power to control the market sphere. But what happened in the last quarter of a century? That the central governments, they are losing the power, the effective power to control the market sphere, in particular the financial markets. Look what happened in this crisis. Why this crisis occurred? Because our national governments were unable or incapable, according to the case, or not willing, according to the other case, to control the financial transaction. And then we obtained the results that we know. Consider the volume of derivatives, CDO, CDS, hedge funds, etc. So now I come to the point. If we really love democracy in the political sphere, we should know that the po political democracy has to be sustained by economic democracy. Because unless the market itself becomes a democratic arena where the democratic principle, there is no way we run the risk of losing political democracy. And if one does not believe that, try to pose and consider what happened in the last few years. Our Ministry of Finance or our Ministry of uh, Economy, whatever, they always have to rely before passing a, a decree or taking a decision, they have to conjecture what would happen, what will be the reaction of the markets. In this crisis, that was clearly evident, in particular in Europe. When uh, you see the spread, well, I said, uh, we cannot do that. We would like to do that, but we cannot. Why? Oh, because the markets, the financial market, will react uh, in that way, which means that po political life, politics, is uh, now following economics and not vice versa, as it was in the past. And uh, the great economists of the past, they always warned that, because the day that politics follows economics, it's a very dangerous day because we run the risk of losing the democratic principle and we enter into dictatorial regimes. I keep on always, uh, I keep on re remembering our experience when last November my wife and myself we are invited in Korea, South Korea, eh? not North Korea. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> And uh, we were invited uh, last November because, you see, the Korean parliament passed the law the first time in their history. You know, the history of Korea, it's a fascinating history from different points of view. They passed the law authorizing the creation of cooperatives. The law entered into effect December the 1st of last year. Now, so they used to come to Bologna the previous year to inquire, to know. We passed them uh, the Italian legislation in order to orient. And in fact, their law is, uh, technically speaking, very well done because they have, uh, I wouldn't say copy, but they have adapted the legislations of Canada, Italy, etc., to their own framework. 
So when we reached the soul, we asked, uh, but why have you decided to pass such a law? In other words, why a country like South Korea, which nowadays is the ninth industrial power in the world, ninth industrial power in the world, uh, uh, took the decision of opening your market to cooperative firms? You know what was the answer that we received? That was very instructive. We, in my opinion, this answer explains better than any other type of argument. The answer was, you know, professors, in this country, there is a, a dozen of big corporations, multinationals, such as Samsung, uh, yeah. and uh, this dozen of corporations, they generate almost 80% of the total GDP. So I said, ah, now I understand what you mean. And they exemplified, they said, you see, we run the risk of becoming enslaved by those dozen corporations. Because if tomorrow the CEOs of the dozen corporations decide to shut down or to delocalize, we run the risk of disappearing. Because they generate almost 80% of the national GDP. So now we want cooperatives to become part of our market economy because we believe in a sort of rebalancing and in the respect, full respect of the rules of the market in order to counterbalance. Because we politicians, we have discovered that we run the risk of becoming a sort of a servants of the dozen multinationals. That was the answer last November which explain the point I'm making. So now, the second conclusion. You understand why do we need more cooperatives? Because cooperatives are democratic firm. In fact, what is the simplest way to define a cooperative? A cooperative is an enterprise which is democratic, which means an enterprise where the operating principle is one head, one vote. A capitalistic firm is non-democratic. Uh, we have to admit that. Because in a capitalistic firm, the rule is one share, one vote. And so if I have, I own one million shares, and you own one share, I count for one million, and you count for one. And which means, non because democracy presupposes equality. When we go to vote in the political poll, the vote of the most genius has the same value as the vote of the last worker. So we need to expand the realm of democratic firms. Because otherwise, unless we reach a certain degree of economic democracy, the political democracy will run the, we jeopardize political democracy. And we shouldn't, we should not be superficial people like those who say, oh, who care less? Because when we lose political democracy, that is a, a, a nasty day, a very black day, and we want to avoid that. So that is the second reason, speaking in favor of the development of cooperative, because we need to democratize the market sphere. A market which is not democratic is not a good market, even though it is efficient. But we know 
that many people can die because of efficiency or super efficiency. Because efficiency is good, but it's not the only value. It's a value. I admit that, and I am in favor. But it's not the only value. Even democracy is another value. So that is the reason why we needed to balance the presence in our market setup of different types of enterprises. In other words, we need pluralism. In the same way as in the political arena, we need a multi-party system. In other words, uh, we need uh, more parties if we want democracy. In the same way, in the market sphere, we need uh, a multi-type of enterprises. Yes, we uh, have two areas in Italy that are, are, have um, farming highly cooperativized. More than 60% of the farmers uh, work in cooperatives uh, and for cooperatives. Um, this is Emilia Romagna and also Trentino. And the strength of uh, um, the organization is due to the fact that they have joined the uh, farming side with the processing side, so we can really speak of agro-industry and not only of farming, no? uh, so that they can internalize uh, the, the, the profits, not only from selling their, their produce, uh, but also from the processing of it. Uh, and uh, they've been so strong in recent times uh, that uh, during the crisis uh, they've been able uh, to increase exports. Uh, so that is one of the very few branches uh, of uh, activity in Italy that uh, has been flourishing over the, over the crisis. And the reason is that uh, they uh, have, have been able to increase uh, spe specialization of of certain lines of specialization in farming uh, so that they uh, think, for instance, uh, of Parma cheese, just to make an example, you know. Uh, most of the Parma cheese is uh, organized in cooperatives or consortia, better to say, uh, so that they can uh, control the quality and uh, then have control also of foreign markets, but this is not uh, is only an example of the very many uh, lines that they can take. And uh, um, it has been incredible, even for Italians, you know, that in the crisis they could increase. We are uh, at the, the level of several billion uh, euros of, of, of production every year. Uh, only in Emilia-Romagna, I know for certain, there is 30 billion. No? Uh, which is produced by uh, cooperatives, uh, uh, both uh, in, in the original uh, crops producing and also in uh, the processing of it, say wine, for instance. Half of the Italian wine, which is the largest exporter of wine now in the world, is produced by cooperatives. Just to, to make an example, but olive oil also, and dairy products, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. In Italy, for the first time, exactly four years ago, uh, was created a new type of cooperative, which is called community cooperative. So it's nice to see the analogies, community corporations, community cooperatives. The logic is the same. 
even though the mode of functioning is a bit uh, different. In any case, uh, apart from these uh, operating differences, the basic principle is the following, that uh, the welfare state today is no longer sustainable. That is financially sustainable. That is something that we have to, as economists, we have to explain to people. So, why is that so? Because the curve representing the government revenues, it's a sort of a linear curve. And the slope of this uh, line is what is called uh, fiscal pressure. And the fiscal pressure cannot continue to increase. The opposite is true, we tend to decrease because for understandable reason. On the other hand, the curve representing the increase of the costs of the welfare services is, has the forms of a hyperbola, hyperbolic, or exponential, better to say. It's an exponential curve. So if uh, now here there is no, no blackboard, but suppose to visualize in front of your eyes a line, straight line, and an an hyperbola or an exponential curve. On the horizontal axis, you put the time, the gap between the two curves is doomed to increase year after year because the cost of the welfare services are doomed to increase, in particular in the health sector. On the other hand, the revenues, even supposing that there is no tax evasion, no, and no corruption, Which is even not. supposing okay, so. that there is no tax evasion or corruption, uh, the gap is doomed to increase. So it is obvious that uh, since we want uh, a welfare services which are, uh, uh, let's say, acceptable by everybody, we have to admit that the old model welfare state uh, is no longer sustainable. So now, what we are proposing in different parts of, of the world is the transition from welfare state to welfare society. Welfare society. So the, the, the noun remains welfare. What is the adjective changes? Now, society is made up, you have to consider society as a triangle. In a triangle, you have three vertexes. One vertex represents uh, the public entities, such as uh, government, commune, municipalities, etc., what are called the uh, public bodies. The second uh, vertex of the triangle represents the sphere of the so-called business community. In other words, uh, the sphere of all the uh, type of enterprises. And the third vertex represents the sphere of the so-called civil society organization, such as voluntary, such as uh, what Yara was uh, explaining in her experience, etc. So society is not the state. The state is part of the society, but does not nullify the other two. So the idea of the welfare society is exactly that. We have to put in a sort of interrelation the three spheres, because each one of the three spheres has a specific vocation, a specific duty, and specific resources. And in this sort of a dialogical approach, they have to define the services and to find the mode of financing them. Now, 
come to the question. Community corporation is an example, not the only one, but it's an important example of the transition from the welfare state to the welfare society, which means that it is the community which can be identified with a small community or a large community, according to the case, which is taking care of certain services. Not everything, but a certain. Because, for instance, in the health sector, has a certain necessity different from the educational sector, etc. So, this, um, the advent of the community corporation only in Italy of community cooperatives is another sign of what I was saying before, namely the re-emergence of the civil market economy. In other words, we have to put to work civil society. Because, as you know, the welfare state was um, the great intuition of a great economist, John Maynard Keynes. John Maynard. He was the theoretician. Because, you know, I met with you. <laughs> Ask the economists that you, whom you know. If they ever read or if they ever quoted the most important essay by John Maynard Keynes, which was published in 1939. The title is Welfare and Democracy. Everybody quotes the general theory or the treatise on money, which is okay. But why nobody quotes that article, which is a long essay, more than an article, <laughs> and which is a fundamental, which is fundamental. That is where the foundations of the welfare state uh, were laid down. But Keynes in that article says, now we are in a period of war. In 39, there was the war going on. And Beveridge, Lord Beveridge, was able to pass the famous package in 42, still in the time of war. So Keynes said, now we have to give to the state all the power because we are in an emergency situation. But sooner or later, the state should give way to the society. And so he was anticipating the transition from welfare state to welfare society. What happened? That he passed away a bit prematurely. And since uh, he passed away, his disciples misinterpreted him. They said, he said, welfare state, let us keep welfare state forever. That is the tragedy. Because Keynes did not want forever. Because he was intelligent. He knew that the welfare state, uh, state, state means government sooner or later would have become non-sustainable from a financial point of view. That is why he said, now I repeat, in the period of war, there is no other alternative, or in a period of emergency. But in a normal situation, the whole society should organize itself. And the whole society is made up of three vertexes, not only one vertex or one sphere, three spheres. So I salute the, the development of community corporation as well as a B corporation. In America, they have created the B corporation. B stands for benefit. And they are creating, in the next perhaps few months, a new type of enterprises which they called participatory non-profit corporations in the US. Participatory, which is very similar not equal, similar to the community uh, corporation. Now, all these facts uh, indicate that even 
in the United States, there is a growing consensus in moving towards what they call civil market economy. Yes, um, I would be inclined in saying that we could add a fourth re reason why we need more cooperatives. So Stefano spoke of fighting against inequalities, uh, avoiding a lack of democracy and increasing liberty. I would add jobs because uh, the tendency of uh, our capitalist world is towards a jobless growth. Why? Because um, uh, two are the possibilities. One is substituting uh, people with uh, machinery. Uh, machinery are much more docile than people, you know. <laughs> they never complain. <laughs> Maybe sometimes uh, they are broken, you know, but they can be adjusted, uh, and that's it, you know. Uh, but people instead, uh, and, and so there is a tendency, in fact, to substitute uh, uh, with machinery, or, or to substitute people who want uh, to have uh, their dignity uh, recognized with people who are in no conditions uh, to ask for this in uh, less developed countries uh, and accept uh, any, any uh, small money provided that they can have a job. I, I think you have read in newspapers uh, recently what has happened uh, in Bangladesh, if I remember well, you know, in which uh, an entire uh, building uh, came down and killed uh, several hundreds uh, of the workers who were working inside, you know, because uh, uh, probably too many people inside that old building. And uh, this um, remembered me a similar case that happened in the United States uh, some century ago, one century ago, uh, in, in, in which pretty similar uh, situation. Uh, and most of the women who were working in that factory in uh, the United States were coming from Italy, and they were textile workers. Uh, and this is the reason why I, I remember this uh, similar case. So th the point is this, that if uh, we only uh, have uh, um, uh, corporations that would uh, maximize uh, uh, profits for, uh, for shareholders, uh, they tend to minimize anything else. And what they are minimizing in this particular period of time are jobs for people, and, uh, and good jobs also for people. You know, because, uh, again, uh, to survive to the so-called uh, uh, international competition, uh, which is based on using law wages uh, as low as possible, you know, uh, to survive on this, sometimes even in our advanced countries, uh, uh, there is a tendency to pay workers less uh, or uh, to get uh, rid of them, as I was saying before. So, you know, if we want to have uh, people treated in, in, in a reasonable way and use their talents, uh, we have to have more cooperatives, and there is no alternative to this. You know, or non-profit organizations, certainly, but I mean, in, in a number of cases, uh, cooperatives are either because uh, of uh, the democratic uh, activities that I have to have inside, or because precisely because they pay uh, more their workers or their suppliers uh, have higher costs. But if they are careful in producing uh, um, also 
the high, more specialized things, uh, high quality things, uh, then they can make up for the difference in costs. And this, I think, is the, a, a very important strategy for uh, cooperatives, you know, because uh, they probably cannot survive uh, a competition, uh, international competition, if they produce highly standardized uh, products, uh, low-quality products, uh, but they can instead uh, survive much better if they are specializing in things that have high quality, high quality uh, uh, in technical meaning, but also high quality in, say, a cultural meaning, because uh, um, they provide, uh, to, to make an example, in the farming, in, in the farm market, um, uh, products that are very traditional for the place, and not so standardized, you know, and uh, that have also uh, a, a, a cultural tradition attached to them, you know, and uh, if they do this, they uh, meet the preferences of many people you know, who uh, understand that our future is in quality and not in quantity. You know? So it's just the opposite uh, to, to Walmart. Walmart, yeah. no? just the opposite of Walmart. No? That closes out our discussion with Gar Alperwitz, as well as the excerpts from the talk by Stefano and Vera Zamani on the civil economy. And one of the things that kept coming up for me in thinking about this issue and going back to our conversation with Rick Wolfs is there's a certain element where even though I know that Rick Wolf was saying that systems change and revolutions are common and, and Gar Alperovitz today was talking about how revolutions are very common in history. I just can't help but think there's so much resistance and the power system just seems so heavily entrenched that it seems so unrealistic to me. I just can't turn myself over to believe wholly that a systems change like that can really occur without decades of really dramatic and incredible upheaval. I think about that a lot, Justin. I think about the fact that most of the solutions that we talk about with people on, on the show, you know, very warm kind of solutions, they kind of rotate around the fact about people being nice to each other and people looking out for one another and people trying to help each other. And when I open the newspaper and when I turn on the news and, you know, sometimes when I even open the door, I, I get, I just got a text message on my phone that said that two people have just been robbed in, in Duke Forest where I go for runs all the time. And it just makes me kind of think about the fact that a lot of these systems kind of rotate around the fact of having people who are altruistic and having people who are looking at who want to be nice and who want to change the system in a way that they're going to help each other. And I just can't get I can't get wrap my head around the fact that not a lot of people seem to want to do that. Not a lot of people want to seem don't want to be nice to each 
other. We we bottle ourselves up and we put ourselves away so that we can't get hurt from one another. It doesn't seem like this nice place where we can have a co-op where we all work together and work to change the system. Am I just being really pessimistic here, Justin? I don't I don't know. One thing that keeps coming up for me is that big systems really don't change and seem invincible and as Gar Alperovitz was saying today manufacture their own feeling of perpetual existence and they change really slowly and then all of a sudden they don't there is that breaking point there is that moment when things fall apart and that people do have to really begin working from the ground up in building that alternative, mainly because they have no other option, not because a uh, venture capitalist gives them tons of money uh, with very few strings attached, and then suddenly they have you know a really great amount of money to devote to doing all these kinds of things. It starts when you really have no other option, when you are long-term unemployed and no hope of finding a job and you are losing your ability to access long-term unemployment checks because maybe your state cut off any access to those and you're staring down all those expectations that you had about your education and getting a job and not having any way to meet those. And then you really do have to start building something else because there's no other way to get by. And I think that's really how this revolution comes about. And I don't think that, as we've discussed before, there's going to be political solutions to these problems because they're so untenable on a macro scale. And even though it seems like when you pit you know, the people of one country against another, there's so much hostility and there's so much anger and there seems to be so much scarcity in the world because the class system is so heavily stratified in places like the United States that it does seem very cutthroat. But I do think that over the next few decades, as we discussed with Gar, if you don't play this game unless you're willing to put decades on the table, and I think he's completely right about that. And it's probably not going to be something that we see in even our lifetimes being young in our late 20s, but we are going to be able to build those elements. And as we build those elements, we're going to build those relationships with people that we trust and create trust. And when you have those networks of trust, it is something where you can get past that whole cutthroat feeling that you were talking about. But that's so hard now to even imagine that it is possible to exist in so many places because it has been taken away and because the whole aspect of work environment has become one that anonymizes you and distills your creative talents down into a very limited set of activities and then takes all of your needs and anonymizes those through the need to use money to transact. But I am very excited, as Gar was talking about, that there are alternative experiments going on in very many different places in the United States and in the entire world on this issue. And that these will continue to grow and continue to grow in number and size and power. But I also think that they're going to be resisted in many cases by the status quo. And I also think that it's going to take a very long time, as Gar mentioned, I'll bring it up again, decades and decades to make it happen. So perhaps the mainstream can move in that direction. But I think that we're in the next definitely over 20 to 30 to 40 years, there's going to be a large number of issues that result from oil depletion and energy 
decline and climate change that are also going to disrupt the picture. And I think that the idea of a civil economy, as Professor Zamani was mentioning, is an excellent goal. And I think that's how things will end up eventually, but not after a long time of upheaval. And, you know, maybe by 2100, everything that is here will look more like the economy in, say, 1400, but with pockets of really high advanced technology. I just wanted to touch on a few news stories before we close out today. And one of them has to do with what we were just discussing. And that is that when you get into that point of the downward spiral of the idea of wages and income, it really bites dramatically. And this is an article on the Greek reporter about Greek salaries falling another 10% in 2013, they're down 10%, but they were down four and a quarter percent in 2011 and down 5% in 2012. And so once you enter this catabolic collapse spiral in your society, it's very hard to then have resources on an individual person level because those wages start falling so fast because of the logic of capitalism. And Vera Zamani mentioned in part of the talk that we had today that basically the idea of capitalism is one where you basically are geared towards a jobless recovery, that the system tends towards no employment because of capital investment and because the logic of people who go through business schools and who run the systems basically run do... Uh, manage things in order to minimize labor costs and labor inputs. And so it leads to these jobless, quote unquote, recoveries like have happened in the U.S. over the last few years. That kind of brings up the point about the fact that government is very much concerned with the short, short term. So the average cycle of a politician is about four years in the United States. And anything that goes beyond that small term thinking is just really out of the scope of anything a politician can even think about when you're trying to get reelected and that's the biggest thing on your mind it doesn't really matter that what's going to happen a 20 30 100 years down the road it, that does, doesn't even become a uh, factor in your brain and that goes into the whole issue that now that we're in this scenario where we're in this uh, decline in the available net energy to society, it makes it really hard to have surplus that you can then devote towards either building a new system or doing other things in your society that allow you to think long term. So business is a huge influence on government, but you also have a cr- more criminalized aspect of, of the world as well, kind of like the uh, Italian mafia, perhaps, which actually has been doing a lot of uh, investing in wind farms in Italy. This is what you were just talking about, how when you have these uh, corrupt government and business systems, that even when there are incentives put in place by a government to you know potentially think long-term about energy issues and put in renewable energy technologies, because of the corruption, it ends up that from this story on RT, that the Italian mafia is using a lot of the renewable energy subsidies to help launder money. It's a big uh, departure from the garbage industry where they, they were before, huh? <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, there's one quote in the article that this guy, Vito, who's a 57-year-old businessman, he was once called Lord of the Wind because of his vast wind farm holdings that he built using invested money made from extortion and drug sales and other illicit activities. 
And so apparently you can use these subsidies in order to help launder money and clean it up. It actually explains a commercial that I saw when I was in New Jersey recently. Hey, Jerry, who's putting solar panels up on top of the roof? I don't know, but I'm going to find out. We don't let nobody put up solar panels in this neighborhood except for us. At Gabani Solar Panels, we import the finest solar panels directly from Italy. We're moving into new industries here in the region, specializing in composting unwanted waste, taking care of your trash, and making sure that anything you need is taken out, if you know what I mean. That's right. If you have a problem with your neighbor, your boss, your ex-girlfriend, just let us know. We're very green friendly. We compost very well. And uh, you'll never find, I mean, you'll never have a problem with that again. Worried about protecting your investment in renewable energy and solar panels and wind turbines? We're experts at protection. We'll make sure that anything you need is protected with a little bit of payment under the table. You know what I'm saying? New Jersey's leading the way in sustainability. We are the garden state, eh? <laughs> Eh, eh. Your energy problems? Forget about it. Thanks so much to everybody who's been emailing and contacting the show recently, who's been interacting on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash extra environmentalist. Thanks to Josh, who posted a great story about a pothole Robin Hood who is stealing asphalt from the city to fix hundreds of holes in crumbling roads and he also posted a story about how the threat to our future is peak water which you know really water is gold in so many ways and fergal who posted a really great image of an extra environmentalist sticker that he threw up on a coal sign in ireland which was just so awesome to see so thanks fergal and speaking of stickers justin i just sent out about 200 stickers to people from about 11 different countries all over the world, all different donators from people who have sent in money uh, above the $15 mark. So if you have sent in a donation of above $15, you should be receiving 10 extra environmentalist stickers in your mailbox within, I'd say, the next 10 days. So watch those mailboxes. And if you get the stickers, we would love to see what you stick them on. They work fantastic on your cell phone, on your computer. Don't put them on your anything living like your dog or um, your grandmother, but they work great on walls and cars and signs like we had in Ireland. And so to the people who donate to our show and give more than $15 to help tell those stories of this grassroots economy that's being built and all of these stories that you don't find elsewhere in the media and to support our ongoing work we send out stickers to people who provide more than $15 in donations and t-shirts to people who send in more than $35 in donations and so if you want to donate you can go to our website extraenvironmentalist.com and there's a donate button at the top or you can send us bitcoins using our bitcoin link on the right hand sidebar of our website at extraenvironmentalist.com we greatly appreciate any donations you send and we put those donations into improving our equipment and purchasing new equipment and making sure that we continually have better quality video and audio interviews for you. That's absolutely right, Justin. And if you do like this episode, there are about 62 others that are freely available 
on the website that Justin has mentioned. That's extravironmentalist.com. You can check us out on SoundCloud, on Stitcher Radio, of course, on our Twitter feed, and as well on our Facebook, which has been mentioned already as well. Feel free to like us on iTunes. That is amazing. And if you'd like to drop us a, a voicemail over SoundCloud, that is great as well. If you want to use a terrestrial phone number, that number is 919-701-9872. Or you can find us on Skype at The Extra Environmentalist. So find us and we would love to hear from you. Or you can just go right onto our website, find the episode that you'd like to leave a comment on, and just drop the comment right into the comment section under the post. And Jared did that recently, and he was commenting about our last episode on land grabs and global energy, where we mentioned the stories that were coming out of Egypt of the power grid breaking down and cars waiting long times at gas stations. And he said that it's great that we spoke of Egypt breaking down and a few days later, Morsi was overthrown. It was really interesting because we were talking about that a few days before it had happened and recording. And then as I was actually editing us saying it, I was watching on Twitter all the photos and stories coming in from the Egyptian revolution as it was occurring, right when we were talking about how we weren't very optimistic that the Arab Spring and the Egypt uprising had really solved the situation, that it had just experienced the same kind of skepticism in terms of revolution that we've been talking about today. And it's not that we were prognosticating at all. We were just pointing out the realities on the ground that we find through news sites. And all you have to do is just extrapolate out a little further to see that once people don't have access to basic goods, political upheaval follows. That's exactly right, Justin. This political upheaval around the world is a exciting and sometimes scary development that is sometimes predicted on this show too well you know a a stopped clock is right twice a day (laughs) and so we will keep predicting the doom and sometimes it'll happen we are headed up to new york for the reroute conference with the new economics institute to cover some of these stories of the new economy revolution that is happening we're going to be live streaming those so check out our website for links for full live streaming coverage of the reroute at new economics institute conference head over to new economicsinstitute.org where there will be links of all the different live streaming material that we will be providing. You can also find it on our website, extraenvironmentalist.com, where you can also keep track of all of the live reroute events. We are greatly appreciative to all of our listeners and everybody who takes the time to send us emails or feedback. James sent us a quick email just to recommend a few books that he was reading recently on simple living and technological criticism. And he mentioned Self-Sufficient Life by John Seymour, The Myth of the Machine by Lewis Mumford, The Tool Book by William Bryant Logan, and also the Firefox book, which is a a series of 12 books, um, which are part of the things that inspired the Firefly conference that you were at recently, Seth. The Firefly festival that I was at a couple weeks ago was an amazing example of what it's like when people with skills can get together, share knowledge and share ideas about making a world that is sustainable for everybody living in a small community. And it's very, very possible for people, especially living in in a self contained community to be happy and to make things and to have homes and 
trap meat and climb trees. And those are some of the skills that I learned when I went to this fantastic Firefly event. And you are putting together some video that you shot there into a little bit of a mini documentary. That's right, Justin. I talked with about three or four different organizers and some teachers and got some fantastic B-roll. And we're going to be putting out a really nice documentary pretty soon. And so that closes out today's episode of The Extra Environmentalist. Roll up your sleeves and start building that new economic system. You know, there's a lot of arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic going on. But I think eventually that fluctuations, as the fluctuations become more violent, they will burst through and, uh, poli and political dialogues will start on various fronts. It's hard to say where it will come. For instance, you know, historians of the of the breakup of the Soviet Union can reasonably argue that what actually the hole in the dike there was the Chernobyl explosion. And that actually set off a series of, of thought, of awareness. People's minds changed. It was like a psychedelic drug, this radiation spreading through Soviet society because they realized, my God, you know, this was a power plant. It was at ground level. It wasn't even a designed explosion. And eight days after it happened, above Auckland, New Zealand, you could sample the, the radiation in the air. So there was a whole crisis of faith in the command economy, in, in uh, everything. And the, this will happen. The one thing you can be sure of could be anything. A hot day in August in Mexico City and a million people die when finally all of these toxic levels come together as they potentially could. Or it could be a nuclear failure. Or it could be an assassination. Or uh, it could be the outbreak of a synthetic disease. Or anything. You know, and what this will bring home to people is that the metastable nature of society is beginning to break down, that the shock waves of the future are building up. And what you, you know, in, in engineering an airfoil, uh, engineers have to take account of what is called Q forces, vibration. If you don't design the airfoil correctly, as you approach the speed of sound, the wings of the airplane will be torn off. And so you have to redesign the airplane to move through this barrier. What we have to do is redesign the cultural airfoil. The main thing is to try to make this through with as little bloodshed and hysteria as possible. And it's a very hard call. And what, one thing that has to be understood is that what is going on is a process of fragmentation. 
And that is what is supposed to happen at this cultural stage, I think. McLuhan talked about what he called electronic feudalism. Wherever fragmentation is resisted, violence and war and horror will break out. For instance, you know, five years ago there was great anticipation of a federal Europe. That ran against the current of dissolution. And now we see there won't be any federal Europe. It's exactly like a birth. And so what you have when you have a birth is it's going to happen. And then the only option you have is, you know, is it going to happen smoothly and with um, uh, skillful pain management and uh, quickly brought to a conclusion? Or is it just going to be an opera? of agony and hysteria and pleading and so forth and so on. And uh, the, the way to ease the historical crisis is by spreading awareness. We're, we're in the roller coaster. The little uh, pipe has now been dropped into your lap. Please do not stand up. Scream if you want. Hang on and... Uh, and will come through it. But we have to reassure people. And the way you reassure people is by getting them to transcend the systems which are spreading the anxiety. I mean, if you're a fascist, if you're a capitalist, if you have some vested interest in the system, then you're going to be sweating blood. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have to divest yourself of a commitment to the system because it's in a process of transformation. Can no longer, no longer, can no longer, can no longer control it. On the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we talk with author Morris Berman about his new book, Spinning Straw into Gold. If you're out of a job and you're going to be for 10 years, you're going to start to think differently about your life, but not the individual, but the whole culture. If basically we run out of resources, we're going to start thinking very differently. We're going to have a very different view of that. And it didn't come from some yogic or mental process that came from the fact that the material conditions of life made it impossible to continue doing what we were doing. And so guess what? We changed our mind about what was real. What a shock. So this is one thing I'm really getting at. And talk for troubled times means that if you want your life to be a success, number one, you need to redefine the word success. It may not be owning a Hummer and having a house that has 50,000 square feet. That may not be success. In fact, I regard somebody like Bill Gates as a colossal human failure. These are, are very important questions, and they cannot be solved by an Oprah-ish kind of po the power of positive thinking.
sharks? They're self-made millionaire and billionaire investors who are entrepreneurs themselves. I'm coming from crowdsource attack ads. I'm asking for $105,000 in exchange for 30% stock in my company. What crowdsource attack ads are, are a way to keep all those crowdsourcing people from actually making any money and keeping it going to the companies that really need it. The companies that are in charge and need to stay in charge. Companies like Monsanto and Dole and GE and Nike. I want those companies making the money they deserve. Here's a sample attack ad I made. Joey wanted to make a documentary. I found some really dangerous environmental problems in my community, and now I just need $50,000 and your support, and I'll be able to report on the groundwater that's contaminated with fracking. But what Joey couldn't do is edit video. He sucks at editing video. He's so terrible at it, all the money you put into the crowdfunding campaign won't even result in anything meaningful. Those bonuses, that extra DVD you're gonna get, it's gonna be shitty. Go and buy a dull banana and eat it. As you can see, my attack ads are 100% guaranteed to make that money that's gonna go to Joey, go to the pockets of companies that really deserve it and are in charge of our world. Yes, yeah, so I really like that idea just because my portfolio has been underperforming recently because of all the money that's being siphoned away into these shitty crowdfunding campaigns. I really like it, but you're a piece of shit. If you sat down in my boardroom, I wouldn't even give you one of my thanks to Dole sponsorship bananas. Thank you. Um, as you can see, my product is very high performing and it will make you lots and lots of money. So you should really support me. Now, now, realistically, how many of these attack ads have you made and how much money have you diverted from crowdfunding campaigns that you've successfully defeated and then put into major corporations otherwise? Well, I've made about 35 ads. Like 35? 12. You made 35 ads? That's all you made and you come here into the Sharks Tank and you expect to get money from successful and extremely busy people like ourselves. I mean, in the five seconds that you were talking there, I got another 200 emails from people who are saying like, hey, come to my city and fund me because I need your money. And I'm like, fuck you, you know? But what what I was trying to say... Shark stank for this one. Oh, no! Come in next, entrepreneur. I was like hanging out in this place in my city and I noticed that there were so many people who didn't have homes. So what I decided to do is think of a new and flexible housing material that was also really available in order to make portable, expandable, quickly deliverable houses for the increasing homeless population. And now wait so one minute why. here, sir. Wait one minute. How much are you asking for? What I'm asking for is for $17, and that'll buy me a hell of a lot of building materials. You can invest a 20% equity stake in cardboard portrait homes. $17? You think we're made of money here, don't you? Look, this is a huge growth opportunity. You guys love growth, right? Like business growth, like equity growth. I'll be able to deliver like quarter over quarter returns every quarter for like the next 20 years. So many people going bust and losing their homes and running out of money and maxing out their credit cards. The only place they're gonna have left to live is a cardboard home. And I got that. 
So what happens when it rains? Well, you get wet. I'm not saying that this is like a fancy house. I'm saying this is a cardboard. Wet, you say? Hmm. I know who's going to be wet. You in the Shark's Tank. Next week on Shark's Tank, find out about the holy condoms. So I have this idea for contraceptives that I dip in holy water and then I puncture with thousands of little needle holes. And that's why I call it holy contraceptives. It'll help with population growth rates like you can't even imagine. Brilliant! This is a product I want to invest lots of money in. I'm going to take that shark out for a date. She's a lot better looking than my ex. Next week on Shark's Tank, we go big. Real big. Shark big. My idea is to make tornadoes. I've got a tornado generation machine that makes tornadoes out in the middle of the ocean. It's fantastic. That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Into the tank for you. Don't make me hit my button on the machine. I'm going to make a shark tornado. It's a shark NATO. Damn it, I hate those. Just can't sit back and watch this. So I'm here today to offer a 50% stake in my radio company that reports on the One World Conspiracy because what I really need is to leverage some venture capital funding in order to fund giant blimps that'll fly up in the sky and paint over the chemtrails and let people know that 1776 is coming back again. And uh, also my mom uh, stopped giving me my allowance and so I need some extra spending cash.